What do Gladys Knight, Dolly, the Oak Ridge Boys, and Big Bird have in common? They've all benefited from the musical genius of my guest today, Ron Oates. Ron has more success in music than most Music Row executives these days, with stories to match. Though as a veteran session pianist, it's his fingers that usually sing, he loves and understands voices, and I'm honored to say he is my dear friend. From just listening to a small sample of stories from his career, you're going to understand why he's known as one of the boys that makes the noise on 16th Avenue. That's a line from a Tom Schuyler anthem about Nashville's famed music row. So join us now and get to know a wonderful music industry insider who's been where you might want to go. Ron Oates is a 60-plus year veteran of the Nashville music industry as a revered session piano and keyboard player, arranger, producer, and songwriter. Ron was the first pianist-slash-arranger included in the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum's Tribute to Studio Musicians. One of his pianos and his arrangement score was on display there. He was recognized and placed in the congressional record by U.S. Congressman Bob Clement of Tennessee and David Phelps of Illinois. In part, the honorarium states that Ron Oates is one of the major creative forces behind an amazing list of hit records and millions of record sales. I'm going to try to take a big breath here and list some of the artists that Ron has worked with. Gladys Knight, Dolly Parton, Oak Ridge Boys, Olivia Newton-John, Anita Pointer, Eddie Arnold, Lefty Frizzell, The Judds, Fern Gustin, Keith Whitley, Lynn Anderson, (sighs) Marty Robbins, Bobby Goldsboro, Dottie West, Billy Joe Royal, Earl Thomas Conley, and tons more. Artists produced by Ron include Engelbert Humperdinck, Vern Gosden, Doug Supernaw, Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs, Dobie Gray, and way too many more to list. He's also played on tons of national jingles, including Where's the Beef? <laughs> and worked on several movies, including Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Nine to Five, and Sesame Street, Follow That Bird, The Exterminator, and The Buddy System. And after that little taste of his career, let's just go on to the interview and meet the man behind the piano. All right, Ron, welcome to All Things Vocal, and thank you for being here to talk to the village, (laughs) the village people. I'm happy to be anywhere with you. We have a long history, don't we? It's very cool. Neither one of us are done yet. Let's don't stop. Let's don't stop. All right, well... I want to start by going back to, it's got to be one of the sweetest points in your career, which is uh, Gladys Knight. Tell me about that. Well, Bob Montgomery called me one day. We were doing orchestra overdubs on Razzie Bailey Mm -hmm. at the sound shop. Bob called me about 2 or 2.30 and said, hey, could you stop by the office on your way to the studio? I have something to play for you. I went, sure. So about 4.30 or so, I showed up at the office, went in and sat down, and we talked for a minute, and he said, okay, kick back. So I kicked back, and he started this song playing. And it's killing me to listen to this song. 
first of all, though, it was like a mid-tempo acoustic guitar vocal demo, you know, songwriter demo. Mm-hmm. But the song is killing me. I just had a divorce two or three months earlier, and I was kind of weak in the heart section anyhow. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I'm listening and listening, and the song gets over, and he said, well, what do you think? I said, that song is wonderful, but it is not a guitar song. It's a piano song. I just had to be involved in that song somehow. <laughs> he said, well, what do we do? I said, call Jim Hurt. Jim Hurt was one of Bob's writers. I said, have him meet us at the sound shop, and he can be learning this song during the three hours of orchestra overdubs. And when we finish, uh, we'll do a piano vocal of the song, Wind Beneath My Wing. Oh, gee. <laughs> so I get with Jim, and remember, I'd only heard this song one time in Bob's office, and, and now I had to listen to it again so I could write myself a sketch to be able to play it. Ernie Winfrey was the engineer. I had Ernie play it again for me, and I wrote a chart, and then I ran through it a time or two to find the sweet spot in Jim's vocal range for this song. So we ran it a couple of times, and I found the key, and then we had to run it again so I could learn how to play it. Then we ran it a time or two, and I told Ernie, turn it on. And we ran through it one time on mic, and that was a one take. First take vocal, first take keyboard uh-huh. or piano. And then I put a Fender Rhodes overdub on it, and that was the demo. Wow. That was the demo that everyone in the world heard. <laughs> And about a month later or so, there we were back in the sound shop recording it on Gladys Knight. Oh. Bob Montgomery producing Gladys Knight. Oh. And um, honestly, uh, as many times as that song's been recorded, hundreds, I suspect, that's truly my favorite one because of the heart and soul of Gladys Knight in that song. So can we play a little clip of that? Oh, you bet. Must have been cold there in my shadow To never have sunlight on your face You've been content to let me shine You always walked a step To go unnoticed But I've got it all right here Right here in my heart I want you to know I know the truth Oh baby Oh and I would be
so Nancy and I were in Vegas. Jim Wilkes was an attorney friend of mine and a singer. And, and you put him on to me, in fact, right? And I was out there with you. Yep. So there we are in Vegas, and I'm passing out the charts to the band for Jim Wilkes. Yeah. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy running toward me with his arms stretched like this. And, I'm, and I looked, and it was Bubba Knight, Gladys's brother, the head pimp. And wow. <laughs> he said, I saw you up here, and I couldn't help myself. I had to run up here and hug you. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, we talked for a few minutes, and then I rehearsed the band. And, and that night, Gladys is the act for the night. But it's Jim Wilkes, Jim Wilkes' birthday party. Yeah, right? yeah. And Gladys stopped after one song, and she said, his wrong notes out there. <laughs> <laughs> what now? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that's been your nickname forever, hasn't it? Oh, wrong, yeah. Wrong notes. Who dubbed you that? Bill Justice. Bill Justice. That's another story. Yes, you don't have many stories the, no. of the music business through the years. Not after 53 years. <laughs> we have to finish telling me about Gladys? Gladys made me come down there and stand in front of the stage. Yep. She said, this man brought me the most beautiful song I'd ever heard in my life. And then when we recorded, he wrote the most beautiful orchestra arrangement I've ever heard in my life. And she sang Wim Beneath My Wimps. I noticed that when we were at that event for, for Jim, she had the most control. I mean, I can't think of a singer right now with more vocal control than Gladys Knight. Oh, and so with her musicality, to be thought of the way she thinks of you to this day, is it speaks a lot, you know, for you. Oh. Uh, it, and it, it, it's actually all true. I know every time I think about it, it moves me. Yeah about her yeah when we were in the sound shop recording some song or another i went out to overdub something on a piano mm -hmm. and i came back in the studio and it's dark in there and she's sitting over behind the console and she said mm, mm, mm. whoever named you wrong she'll named you wrong <laughs> <laughs> take that bill justice <laughs> uh, yeah. thank you bill justice <laughs> All right, well, let's let's go back to the beginning and talk about how in the heck you ended up in Nashville. It's quite a story. So I was in the Navy band for five years. The last three years of my, my Navy experience was spent in Pensacola at the uh, Naval Air Station band. So I get out. What now? <laughs> I didn't know how to do anything except play piano. And so I had a trio, and we played five nights a week, piano, bass, drums, and girl singer. And uh, she was like a vaudeville, do it all, dance and act and sing. It was great. Anyhow, five nights a week. And, you know, between sets, the musicians go out and schmooze with the, with the customers. Mm -hmm. So there was one couple who was there two nights a week. Ken and Marilyn Casey were there two nights a week. They loved our music. They loved the food, whatever. Well, I got to be friends with them because I was two nights a week schmoozing with them. So we got to be friends. And I'm sitting there between sets one night and Ken said, you know, we have another piano player friend from Pensacola. I went, okay, great. It's competition. Right? <laughs> they said, no, he's a great player. And I'm, 
Okay, great. <laughs> <be> greater. <laughs> he said, but he's the top session piano player in Nashville. I didn't even know what that was. I knew Nashville was in Tennessee. I didn't know it was a recording center. Oh, they said, his name's Larry Butler. <laughs> he said, the next time Larry comes home for the weekend to visit his parents, we're going to call you and get you together with him. And I got to stop you right here. Yes. For everybody listening, you'll have to do an internet search on Larry Butler's name and realize why this was such an auspicious sort of connection right here. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Legendary. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, Ken called me a couple of weeks later and said, Ron, Larry's coming in for the weekend to visit his parents, and he's going to be performing at this big fundraiser they have every year in Pensacola. And he said, we want you to go meet him. So Carol, my first wife, and I went to see Larry Butler. And we walked into this big place. Larry is already playing. And we stood there for a minute. And I went, oh, good grief. That's a real piano player. (laughs) I said, I'm a hack. And so we went and sat down and listened. And when he finished, he got down off stage. And Carol said, well, let's go meet him. And I went, I'm not going to go bother that guy. (laughs) She said, wait, what? I said, no, I'm not. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to the car. Come on. She said, no. (laughs) No, you're not. You stand right there and pointed at my feet. And she went and got him. And Larry said, Ron, oh my, he said, I've heard you. Great. I'm flying back to Nashville in the morning. Why don't you go with me? I said, okay, great. I met him at the airport the next morning, bought a ticket, and flew up here with him, stayed at his house. Wow. And I flew home Tuesday afternoon. But he took me to Sessions. Well, first of all, he took me to one of his friend's house on Sunday night. It was Ron Chancy. Oh, my goodness. There's another name, guys. Oh, my God. Look him up, too. Mm-hmm. Produced everybody. I did. Oh, my God. Oak Ridge Boys, Brenda Lee, a bunch mm-hmm. On Monday, he took me to Sessions. Dell Reeves was the first one. The next one was Eddie Arnold. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> musicians were the greatest players I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. And they all acted like they got along. Well, that's unusual to begin with. But I was thinking, oh, my God, I could really do that. Well, I flew home on Tuesday afternoon, and two weeks later, I lived here with Larry Buckle. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Tuesday. I moved here and I had borrowed $250 from a banker friend to move up here. By Saturday, five days later, I'm looking at my money and I'm going, oh, no, I'm going to have to go back to Pensacola with my tail tucked between my legs. <laughs> and Clayton Ivy's already got my gig at the club. <laughs> Believe that? He and I go back that far. So uh, I don't know what to do. How long does it take to break into this music business anyhow? It's been five days already. <laughs> it's been five so, days. <laughs> Tuesday, the phone started ringing. Thank you, Larry Butler. I had somebody call me for sessions. Those first sessions were for Ron Chancy. He was running Blue Book Music, which uh, was Buck Owens' Nashville publishing arm. And Ron needed to do his first demo and call me. So we had first demos together. Unbelievable. And then we just stayed together the whole rest of both of our careers almost. Wow. I moved in 1980 to Nashville from Memphis. And I think I met you, I think you were playing piano for Kelso Hurston doing a jingle. 
one of those big big national spots. Oh, Lord, yes. Of course, they didn't have the gear. Obviously, they've got now that automatically you know was syncing things up. So, I remember that you you know would watch the TV screen and try to play with with the screen with what was going on. Oh my gosh, that was so long ago. <laughs> 112 years. I know, before we were born, yes. Yeah, it was long before we were born, we (laughs) were trying to do this. And uh, Kelso and Ron Chansey Uh were the two jingle kings in this town back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, the jingle queen was Gail Hill, remember? Mm -hmm. And I, I was leader on everybody's sessions. So needless to say, you did not need to go back to Pensacola with your tail tucked between your legs. My goodness. <laughs> Thank you, Larry Butler. Well, okay. So you went from a really busy, amazing first call session player in Nashville to actually producing gold and platinum records. What led you from playing to leading? Somebody just called and said, hey. <laughs> I said, yes. Somebody noticed noticed you knew what you were doing, huh? You know, the national musicians, the number system, a black sheet of paper, and they just all wrote their numbers out. Mm-hmm. Basically, what you had was six or seven different people's ideas about how your records sound. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed uh, one day, I went, well, why don't I just write the charts on manuscript paper? And use all the performance notes and, and key signatures and everything like formal music, but still use the numbers. Well, it shook people up for a little while. Oh, we still use the numbers. Ah. Oh, yeah, I use the numbers, but all the formal music things. Yeah. Performance notes, crescendos, decrescendos, yeah. retards, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I wrote it all out. And in the process, they were all learning things about music. I'll never forget guitar player Bill Hullett mm-hmm. was there one day, and he looked at the charts, and he said, oh, this is in the key of E, right, Mr. Ron? And I said, absolutely is. He had learned key signatures. And to pause for a second, a lot of really great session players through the years actually don't read music. They did not. They just, they've just done stuff by ear their whole lives. And, they're so- and that's why manuscript paper scared them to death. Yeah, right. And so the number system got developed. So what happened, producers like Nelson Larkin and Ron Chancey mm-hmm. and Bob Montgomery, they would call me a week ahead of time before we would do an album on someone to come by the office and pick up. In the early years, it was a cassette. And then, of course, it became CD later. But had me come and pick up the music that we were going to record the next week, I'd go home and write the charts for them. The way I heard them, yeah. we'd go in and you didn't have to waste time. Oh, by the way, when, when I would do that, if it was an artist like we'd never recorded before, mm-hmm. like Janie Fricky when we started doing her. My old roommate. Exactly. <laughs> I'd never heard her. So I went, I listened to everything these artists had recorded previously so I could find that sweet spot in their vocal range for this song or that song yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And basically doing pre-production. I wrote all those things out the way I felt those songs ought to go. And we went in the studio and all that time was saved for we didn't have to say, oh, let's do it one more time, take it up a half step. No, let's take it down, do it one more time, take it down a whole step. Let's 
didn't have to waste any of that time going on and didn't have to work the songs out because they were right there in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And they could just concentrate on making magic within that Oh within yeah, that framework instead of yeah. developing the framework at all. Yeah. And you didn't have six or seven people's ideas about how your record was supposed <laughs> to sound. Well, you got into producing big time and you've produced so many people and, and so many legendary songs and you're still doing it. What I wanted you to tell us about is how you go about your pre-production to delivering the final mix, your process. Take us into your producing process. Like, okay, there's a new artist and you've met for the first time and she's decided that uh, she wants to have a legendary producer produce her next album. So where do you go from there? Work. Pre-production work. Mm -hmm. Don't skimp on the pre-production. I sit there at the piano forever with an artist working on the songs ensuring again that we have the perfect key for their voice and they're with you there yes that's great sitting there i have a big white leather piano bench called a duet bench Mm -hmm. to go along with your beautiful big white grand piano (laughs) well thank you yamaha 1974 yamaha said we think you need a piano and i went whoa so do i (laughs) so which one would you like (laughs) i mean that went all the way from a spinet to nine foot grand concert grand wow and i thought nobody had room enough for a concert grand in their house so i said how about a six foot conservatory grand (laughs) they said okay what color white and they went white <laughs> why would you want a white piano i said well it needs to match my cadillac and uh, <laughs> those were the days <laughs> they, went, they went well okay it's going to take about two years and so in 76 they called and they said your piano's in and there it was wow anyhow back to wherever we were yeah your your artist is sitting on the bench with you and and we just work and play and change and alter whatever until it fits whatever I'm thinking is is the way that record's supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. And then she or he has it down. Mm-hmm. And we can't get away with no pre-production or just send somebody the songs. Do they go, oh, I love this song. I'm going to cut it. Well, we're going to work on it before we cut it. And it saves all the time in the studio, as I said, about key, but also about where we're going to play things. Mm-hmm. And if I need a specific bass line, I write it out. Mm-hmm. If I need a certain guitar part in a certain place, maybe to go with a vocal or whatever, I write that out. Sometimes I have to sit at the piano and show some players how to what, what that is, and then they look at it and they've got it. So we do all that, and we get the songs cut, and then comes the lead vocal overdubs. Mm-hmm. I did an album on Mickey Furman in October, and oh my God, of 11 songs. Mm-hmm. We cut tracks on Monday and Tuesday. She came in on Wednesday to do some lead vocals and did all 11 vocals <laughs> in one day. Wow. You know how amazing that is. Yeah, I do. It's very, very rare. 
You do background vocals after that. Background vocals after that. <laughs> and then we mix. How long is it usually from meeting the artist to getting that final mix? Okay, if you have an artist here, mm -hmm. and they can just come over and sit down and, and we work, mm -hmm. finding the songs is the trick. Yes, finding the songs or writing, writing them. Mm -hmm. Or writing them, yes. I don't mind that part. <laughs> finding the songs, though, is, is the trick. I don't know. Sometimes it takes a while to find the correct songs. Mm -hmm. And everybody's wanting to get a song on the project. We have to find the right ones. Mm -hmm. And then we do all the pre-production. And when it's time to record, that typically takes two days. Mm -hmm. Because you're not going to get 10 or 12 songs in one day. Because you don't want to wear the, the uh, artist out. And you don't want to wear the musicians out. Right. Even though I know you've been on those sessions. <laughs> you've played oh, on those sessions, haven't oh you? Oh, <laughs> Lord. Back in the day, uh -huh. we would cut from 10 o'clock in the morning. To 1 o'clock in the morning. Yes. Sessions are three hours long. If you do four sessions in a day, you wore out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and then things tend to get sort of cookie cutter instead of instead mm -hmm. of magic and and create and creative so you're exactly right that's what you're you're protecting the artist by not letting that happen what do you what do you wish every singer knew before they came into the studio what are a couple of things that you make sure your artists know before they come into the studio the songs <laughs> <laughs> What a concept. Yeah, that's a big help right there. Uh-huh. Lay off the caffeine. Lay off the caffeine for the day. Yeah. <laughs> what does that actually do to the well, one thing it does is dry your vocal cords uh, up, but you can drink water as a chaser to caffeine. But the real problem with caffeine that I find is and that this happens with a lot of chocolate too. And that is it speeds up your metabolism and you get all your tempos too fast. Yeah, we don't want that going on. And you can't control your voice as well. So right. maybe a cup of coffee in the morning, you know, first thing before. Before you get to the before studio. Before you get to the studio. But then no coffee, no caffeine all, all through your leave. Because that pot's out there bubbling with coffee all the time. It always is, isn't it? And you're correct. Water. Okay. The first thing is don't sing yourself to death on the tracking vocals. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. I can't tell you how many people do that. Oh, my God. They want to impress the players a lot of times if they're new artists. Mm -hmm. Or or they just simply love it because it feels so good singing in the middle of all that sound. But, yeah, chill it on the scratch vocal day. I have to tell them, we just need your vocals so the players need where to, where to play the good stuff. And um, don't strain. Don't sing out. Tell me about players who actually listen to the lyric, because I know you do. What does that change? To know what the story's about? <laughs> what does that change? Mm -hmm. First of all, what you have is a story and a storyteller, mm -hmm. the song and the singer. Mm -hmm. Musician-wise, anything that gets in the way of either one of those doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. When I first came to town, and started doing sessions, I actually asked for copies of the lyric sheet so I would know what I'm playing to <laughs> or surrounding or whatever. I didn't want to be in the way of anything. And I didn't even know 
that that was something I should be doing. <laughs> yeah. I just sat down at the piano and went, oh, gosh, listen to her. I don't want to play over that. Yeah. Wait a minute. What's she saying? Don't get in the way. Yeah. How much of an artist development person do you have to be to be a producer? There's an element of that besides, you know, you're not going whole hog on the social media stuff and all that, but don't you have to kind of help an artist decide who they are as an artist in the business? Honestly, deep down inside, I hope they already know who they are when they get here. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Love that. But I can listen to someone and know if they're in the wrong direction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you gently move them around and never go. No, that's no, that stinks. Don't, don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, that's not a good way to go about it because, Oh my gosh, everyone's ego is so fragile. Yeah. Creative, creative yeah. people. What I notice is that you are a mentor for your artists. And you care about them. There are producers I've seen through the years, in, and they're in every city, but definitely in Nashville, who don't really care. They're just taking the money and, and running, you know, with this quick a project that they can get done. You've never been that way. You care about your artists. You always have operated with the utmost integrity. And that's why you're still working, my friend. Not to mention the fact that you're also incredibly good. You're very sweet. Thank you so much for that. You mentioned a word there, which which I think has kept me in the business for in my 53rd year and still doing it. Credibility. Mm-hmm. Credibility is the word. And when I'm gone, nobody's going to be back there going, you know what that dirty son of a gun did? No, there won't be any of that because I didn't do it. Yep. <laughs> And with with artists mentioned the word earlier, fragile. Yeah. Yes. You can kill a whole project by not keeping in mind that it's their baby. And I love every minute of it. My phone is always open. They can call me two o'clock in the morning. I don't care. If they need some reassurance, that's what I'm here for. Talk to us about some movie projects that you worked on. Were they fun? Oh, my God. Yes. We did music here for one of those. It was called Follow That Bird. Follow That Bird. Sesame Street. <laughs> yes. We have no idea what's going on except Big Bird's been stolen. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, at the end of that... I went to Toronto to do uh, overdubs on that Big Bird movie. And uh, I got to meet the voice behind Big Bird. And uh, Jim Henson and Frank Oz, the creators of all that stuff. Penny and I flew up there and and spent a week doing that stuff. We had such a great time. Yeah. And then Dolly called me one time Mm -hmm. and asked if I could come to come to L.A. and do an album with her. She told me the date, and I said, it's funny, I'm in L.A. that week, but I'm working, and I'm not going to, I won't be able to do it. I'm already working. She went, what? When are you working? And I said, Thursday and Friday. She said, that's wonderful. She said, I'm I'm recording. We're recording on Monday and Tuesday. 
<laughs> so you can come to LA early and do my album. Then you can write your arrangements and everything for the orchestra stuff. And I went, yeah, but I need to be working on it. And she said, well, you come on. I'll have a piano put in your hotel room. <laughs> and she did. Oh, my. I got to LA and checked into my hotel and there was a piano. Wow. So I was able to do her album, uh, which was Heartbreak Express album. I did that album. And then on Thursday and Friday, Gladys Knight again. Oh. It was a movie thing for the buddy system. And you're producing this. Oh, so I did Dolly and Gladys in the same week. Ah, life is just sucking. <laughs> yeah, no, it sucked. Piano in my hotel room. You're also a successful songwriter. And and that just kind of came along for a ride with the, everything else you've done. You didn't have to read a songwriting book, did you? You just kind of knew what to do. Oh, my Lord. I don't know how. You dissected songs through the years. This guy called me one day, early in 1971, I think. And he said, Ron, I've been hearing records that you've been playing on, and you sound great. Uh, would you possibly be interested in writing some music to my lyrics? And I went, sure. That's <laughs> another one of my things I tell everyone. Never say no. <laughs> yeah, sure I can. Because people don't forget no. <laughs> Unless it's something you absolutely know you cannot do. Yeah. Anyhow, I said, sure. Well, he told me where his office was, and I went. I'd never heard of Ed Penny before. Mm -hmm. We talked a while. I sat down at his piano, and he put lyrics in front of me. First of all, he doesn't sing. He doesn't play any instrument. All he does, he's a lyricist. I said, could you read this and tell me how you feel it? How you felt it when you wrote it? Just read it to me so I can get the flow. I didn't know I was supposed to ask that. But I didn't know how it went until he started reading it to me. And it was three, four. It was a waltz kind of thing. So I started playing. And in an hour, we had a song. The first song I ever wrote was a Charlie Rich single. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Who's going to love me now? I didn't know how to do that. It just came out the ends of my fingers. Uh-huh. That's where the music comes from. I don't, I can't remember all the people who cut that song. Dottie West, Nat Stuckey, Brian Collins. I can't remember. 40 some people had that song <laughs> right away. <laughs> that little performance rights organization check must have been lovely. <laughs> it's still hanging around. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, you are not retired, and I actually can't imagine you ever being retired. Because you love what you do. Gosh, me. You know, yeah, me and you both. Nancy and I talked about going away, mm -hmm. selling out and buying a house on a deep water canal in southwest Florida. Mm -hmm. What would I do? Mm -hmm. The creativity energy, the creative energy is in the air in this town. I have to have these people around me. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't live without it. I could walk out across my yard and sit down on my retaining wall, tie a string to my toe and catch lunch, and then what? <laughs> so what advice would you give 
to someone who quit for a while, but doesn't feel quite done yet, how can one start creating again? What advice would you give? You know, uh, the creative energy, once it's in there, doesn't ever go away. Yeah. You just let it. Yeah. And as far as, so you've been on a hot streak and you've been doing it and then it cools off a little bit and you move away or something. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Nashville is one of those places where you must be present to win. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, you go away and you got a different area code and something. If somebody calls and says, hey, can we meet for lunch? I need to talk to you about a new artist I have mm-hmm. coming up for production. Mm-hmm. And you're two days away. How does that work? Mm-mm. No, you need to go. Yeah, we can meet today. So the first thing you would say is be present in the place where it's going on. Yes. Be in the room where it happens. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have to be. <laughs> The love for the for the music, the love for making it just has to kind of remain. Uh, you have to keep stoking that fire, don't you? I can't imagine how it could die. Yeah, yeah. Well, if anybody's out there listening, I want you to hear this from both of us. You know, if, if it hasn't died, but you quit and you feel like you're not quite done, don't be done. Mm-mm. No, it's yours. Mm-hmm. It's in there. Mm-hmm. Ron, you, I want to credit you for this. You helped my husband get it back until we did one last project. Oh, my God. And I, Thank you. I'm so incredibly grateful for that because he's so happy that we got to do that. We got to write a whole new album and play it out. And, you know, you, you were present while he got his chops back. And so we, we both love you so much for that. So thank you. You're so sweet. Thank you. I'd like to pass that on to the rest of the crowd out there listening. If you're not done, don't be done. In fact, if you think you're done and you're listening to this, you're probably not. I know. <laughs> so I know. Go create, go create something. Why am I listening to this? <laughs> exactly right. If you're listening to this, you still got something going on. Yeah, I'm thinking. So, Ron, where can people find you and listen to some of your work and see that beautiful piano, in fact, because I know what you're going to (laughs) say. Where can people find you and contact you if they're interested in talking to you about production? My website, ronoates.com, R-O-N-O-A-T-E-S dot C-O-M. There you go. Okay. Well, I will leave a link to that in the show notes and everybody uh, check that out. You'll love just looking through the site and seeing all the things that Ron has gotten into in the last few decades. And it does open with Gladys Knight. Mm -hmm. I know. I know. I checked it out. Ron, thank you so much for being here with us and taking us into your fascinating life through the years. That's not done yet. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the studio someday soon. Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. Let's do that. Well, that wraps up another episode. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know this music history maker we call Ron Oates. I'm Judy Rodman, and you can always find me at judyrodman.com. Take a moment now and hit the subscribe button for this podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening at my blog, I'd sure love to read your comments. See you next time for All Things Vocal, the podcast for voices that matter.